Good morning. This morning's passage comes from John 17, verse 1 through 26. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that, may, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Amen. Well, as we uh, come to the word of the Lord this morning to receive his wisdom, uh, we come, as Scott said at the beginning of our service, to an actual physical place that's referred to in the New Testament as the upper room. And the upper room, just to be frank, was nothing more than a guest room that was located on the second floor of somebody's house. And in fact, the first time that I went to Israel, our Israeli tour guide took us into a part of the old city of Jerusalem, and he actually took us up a staircase up the side of somebody's house to an upper room. And I remember, you know, kind of coming into the upper room, and I'm like looking at the architecture, and I'm thinking, this is clearly Crusader-era architecture, you know. So I went to him, and I said, hey... You know, you're not suggesting, I think, anyway, that this is actually the upper room. And he said, oh, no, no, no. He said, this is not the upper room. This is an upper room that's located in the part of the old city of Jerusalem that we believe was the place where the home with the upper room was once located. But that house is gone. And honestly, that's okay. The room itself is not what's special. It's what happens in the room. 
that is really stunningly special. It's the room, if you're familiar with the story of the life of Jesus, in which Jesus gathers together for the last time with his guys on the night that he's betrayed. Like after this, they leave, they go down out of the city, they go through the Kidron Valley, they come up onto the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane is, and then what? Well, then it just transpires that he's arrested and charged and tried, and then the next day crucified. So this is it. And he does a lot of really amazing things in this room, this final meeting. So, for example, Jesus, we know, washed the feet of his disciples in this final meeting. And he was doing something, I think, in that moment that they didn't understand, but that they came to understand. What was he doing in this foot-washing exercise? He was reenacting, really, in some sense, the entirety of his ministry. Why do I say that? Well, you just follow the verbs. Jesus, we're told, stood. He disrobed. He took upon himself the garments of a servant. And then what did he do? He took a basin of water and man by man, he washed what was understood in that culture to be the lowliest parts of these people and clearly the filthiest. They walked everywhere they went, they wore sandals, enough said. So how is that a reenactment, a parable, if you will, of his ministry? Because if you believe what the Bible says about who Jesus is, then you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. And that God did what? He stood up from the throne of heaven. He laid aside voluntarily and willingly all of the garments of his majesty. He clothed himself in flesh and blood, the vestments of humanity. He came to us in the posture of a what? Of a a king, of a rock star, of a celebrity? No, no, no. Of a servant. And as a servant, he loved us and he served us. And he gave his life away for us so that by his blood, even the filthiest and lowliest parts of us could be made clean. It's remarkable. But it's remarkable also to think that as Jesus is there and he's washing the feet of his disciples, Jesus knows as he's doing this that these guys only a few hours later are going to use these exact same feet to do what? To abandon him and to run from him. It's interesting. What a night. Jesus has. Not only that, Jesus answers the questions of his disciples. You know, they're firing questions. And Jesus is answering the questions, but he's answering the questions knowing that the questions are coming out of mouths that at least in one case is going to betray him to his death with a kiss, and in another case is going to deny that he even knows Jesus three times publicly, the third at the very least in the presence of Christ himself. Good grief. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper in the upper room. He gathers together with his guys to celebrate the Passover, at least ostensibly, but what he does is he takes the elements of the Passover, the the unleavened bread that breaks, you see, the wine that is like unto blood, and he says, guys, let me tell you what this is actually all about. You're not going to understand this tonight, but like a few days from now, when I'm risen from the dead, you're going to get this. So here's what this is. This is my body broken for you. This cup is the cup of my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this, he commands, in remembrance of me and of all that I've done for you. What is he saying? He's saying, hey, there's bad news and there's good news to the gospel. So the bad news is that all of us are so filthy in some sense that nothing short of the life of the Son of God could make us clean. And the good news is that God loves us so much that the Son of God broke the bread of His body and poured out the wine of His blood to rescue me and to rescue you, to make us clean. 
But no sooner does he finish the institution of the Lord's Supper than does he have to endure the indignity of listening to his guys argue amongst each other as to which one Jesus, very shortly, like in the next day or two, was going to appoint to be the greatest one above his other brothers in an earthly kingdom that Jesus didn't even come to bring. It's heartbreaking. And then, of course, Jesus does final teaching here. So he, he teaches these guys. He gives them sort of his final corpus of material, and he does that knowing that even though he's been teaching these guys for the last three years, nonstop, they still didn't understand what he was talking about. Which brings us to the final thing that Jesus does in the upper room. He prays the prayer that Drew just read for us. But before we look at the prayer and what the prayer says, what I want to do is I want to make sure that you understand who it is that he prays for. Because he doesn't just pray for those guys in that room in that particular moment in history. I mean, clearly, he's praying for them. But, but he's also praying, and the prayer makes it clear, particularly at the end, that he's praying for us. And he's praying for us, by the, by the way, on the night that he's going to be betrayed, on the night that his sufferings are going to begin. And he's praying for us even though he knows in advance, just like he did with those guys, that look, man, we'd all be born with feet that run from him, with mouths that deny and betray him. And even publicly at times, he knows that we'd all be born with hearts that if we're really honest, want to use him. To do what? To make ourselves great. Hey, Jesus, can you make my plans happen for me and with minds that ought to know better, but that don't? We were on the Lord's heart as he commences his sufferings. And he commences his sufferings, guys, for us. So now that you know who he prays for, all right, let's look at what he prays. Because what he prays really defines, in a lot of ways, our mission. It defines, in other words, what you and I, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are to go out of the doors of this church and then daily to do. So what's that? Well, he answers that, I think, in the first verse. So John says this in John 17, verse 1. He says that when Jesus had spoken these words, so Jesus is done now with this final corpus of material that he wanted to give to his guys. He's finished teaching, and now it's time to close the meeting in prayer. And here's what he says. He says that he lifted up his eyes to heaven. Why does he give us that detail? Because I think it's significant. He, give us, he gives us that detail because here's what he knows about us as human beings. We have an imagination. And what does an imagination enable you to do? To go places that you aren't, doesn't it? to experience things that you're actually not. It's a remarkable faculty imagination. And so what is John doing? He's giving you a detail that in your mind's eye, he knows you're immediately going to see. Why? So that you can enter into the room and find your seat at the table. He wants to take you there. And he makes it personal by drawing us in. He says, look, when Jesus had spoken these words, John says that he lifted up his eyes to heaven. Now you can see him. And he said, Father, the hour of my suffering and death, that's the hour he's clearly referring to, has now come. And so now here's his prayer, but it's not just his prayer for himself. It's his prayer for us. He says, glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. All right, let me try to explain how that works. God the Father has ordained that God the Son suffer and die. Bad news, good news. That's what it takes. Good news, that's what happens. But in ordaining the death of Jesus and his sufferings, what has God also the Father ordained? 
He has ordained that the sufferings and death of Jesus bring glory to Jesus, guys, for forever and ever and ever and ever and ever from whom? From everyone he suffers and dies for. There is an eternal anthem of praise that arises out of the sufferings and death of Jesus. And so the Father glorifies Christ and for forever by ordaining that indeed he be put to death for us. But it works the other way too, because just as the Father has ordained this, Jesus willingly submits. And in willingly submitting to the will of the Father and going ahead and suffering and dying that he might purchase us, what does he do? He ensures that God the Father will be forever glorified and praised. Why? Because the suffering and death of Jesus is itself the signature display of the love of God the Father for every single one of us. What does John say earlier in the same gospel? For God so loved. Who? I mean, just make it personal. You. That he gave Jesus so that whoever believes in him might not perish, might be forgiven, might know everlasting and eternal life. So that's how I think it works between God the Father and God the Son. But the question is, well, then how does that work for us? I mean, like, how does this define what you and I, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and answer to this prayer, incidentally, are supposed to go outside the doors of this church and then daily do? Well, think about it this way. How is Jesus alive in the world today? How is he embodied? Because he has a body. He's embodied by us as individuals but as a collection of Christians too, is He not? His Spirit resides within us. Jesus Christ is alive and even embodied. We're referred to, the church is, as the body of Christ in the world today. And so then what does the life of Jesus look like? Because we've already seen the pattern and it's the same pattern that's now to be showing up in our lives since we embody His Spirit. He's one who has risen from His throne. He's one who lays aside His glory He's one who takes upon himself the form of a servant and enters into the fray of humanity to do exactly what? To love humanity, to serve humanity, and to lay down his life for humanity that there might be a substance that makes the whole of us clean, that is to say, his blood. And so then what should my life and your life and then all of our lives collectively look like in a general sense on a daily basis? It should look like you and I doing that as well. It should look like you and I getting up daily and by the power of the Holy Spirit forsaking the little thrones that if we're honest, all of us are building. All of us are making and no matter how high they get, incidentally, compared to His? Yeah, you know. That's not the comparison you want to make or maybe it would be good. Because we're called to get off of them. To lay aside the worldly splendor and vestments that we pursue. To take up the form of a servant in our homes and in our offices and in our school and in our city. And to willingly and sacrificially lay our lives down into what end? That we might love the city and serve the city and, and that we might see people in the city come to know Jesus Christ and to find the blood, which is the water, if you will, that authentically makes clean. So that, I think, is the mission. And the question then becomes, all right, well then, what do we need for the mission? Well, obviously, we need the Spirit and the Word, but like, what else does this prayer indicate? And I think the first requirement of the mission is that you and I actually have a relationship with God the Father through faith in God the Son. And I say that because it just continues in verse 2. Jesus, again speaking, says, Since you, meaning you, God the Father, have given Him, meaning me, Jesus, God the Son, authority over all flesh, so there it is to do what? Because here's the mission. 
to give eternal life to all who ha- whom you have given to me. And now don't miss this. He says, and this is eternal life. And how is it defined? That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent into the world to do what? To make that possible. To make that happen. God the Father has looked at the way that we have lived and what He's realized is that we have been building wall upon wall upon wall upon wall upon wall upon wall upon wall between ourselves and the one that we were made to know and made to live for and that we're helpless to remove any of them. Christ comes to remove those walls to make the way of relationship open to the Father. It is entirely relational. He says that you may know. And knowledge, as I said last week, I think, in the Bible is experiential. It's not know about. It's not know a lot of facts and information. No, no, no. That you might know on a personal basis Almighty God whom you were made to to know and made to live for. And I mean, you know, just kind of as an aside, I think that until that happens in my life or in your life, here's what's going to happen in all of our lives. Apart from that, As the years go by, here's what else builds. It's not just the number next to our age. It's guilt. So we move through life with this ever-increasing feeling of guilt because we suspect that, in fact, maybe there is a God and that if there is a God, then there's a cosmic accountability to what we do with our lives and every year gives us more and more opportunities to do more and more things that if there's a cosmic accountability, we just might have to account for. And the reality is that even the good things that we start doing at some point in life, because we realize at some point in life that maybe we're on the back side of the equation of life, we're in the second half, if you will, and we start thinking about some of the things we did in the first half, and now we have maybe some more resources to do things and we start doing this and we start doing this and we start doing this and we good things. But why are we doing them? To outweigh this over here. So then who are they for? Think about that for a minute. We are called to do good things, but simply because we belong to Jesus. And the Gospel frees us authentically to do that for the first time in our lives. I think the other thing, apart from the removal of all of these walls and relationship with God and guilt and all of that stuff taken away that we move through life with, is an ever-increasing fear of death because we understand that every day brings us a little closer to it, doesn't it? And again, if there is a God, and we suspect that maybe there is, we don't necessarily want to believe that there is, and we don't want to believe that there is. Why? Simple. Because we don't want to be accountable. I think I've said this before, but Aldous Huxley is somebody who was not a believer in Jesus for sure, but I appreciate his honesty. He says, I don't want there to be a God. And the reason I don't want there to be a God is because the absence of a God frees me to my political and erotic ambitions. In other words, it allows me to go do whatever I want to do. That's the idea. We suspect that maybe there is, and that if there is, Death is a fearsome thing for us, but, but if death for you because of Christ is only going to bring you into the presence of the one whom you have not seen and yet you love, what is death? It's not your enemy anymore. In an odd and ironic kind of way, it's your friend. It's an entrance into something better, greater, and immeasurably so. It's not to be feared and resisted in some sense, but it's 
It's changed, you see. And I think as well that apart from that knowledge of God through faith in Jesus, I mean, you know, we, we move through life in addition to that with an ever-increasing feeling of despair. And here's why I say that, because we move through life trying to find things through which we can gain some kind of purpose for our existence. And we move through life sampling things, trying to find some kind of meaning for why we're here occupying space on the planet. And we move through life trying to find something that satisfies, something that finally makes me feel secure, something that finally makes me feel full in a way that never am I going to be empty of. We move through life trying, sampling after this upon this and relationship upon relationship and achievement upon achievement, all of these different things. And all the years do is allow us to try more things and fail. And with every failure, we're like growing in despair because it's like, good grief, what's next? What's left? And the Lord is coming to you and going, listen, I made you to know me. I made you to live for me. I made you to find all of those things only in me. And apart from that, well, you'll be empty. You'll be purposeless. So anyway, if we're going to live in such a way as to bring glory to the Father and glory to the Son, how? By getting up every single day and going, you know what, this is not a throne building day for me. <laughs> Unless that somehow serves the kingdom, in which case it's not for me. It's for the kingdom, which is the whole idea. And this is, this is not a glory gather for me. This is not a life about me. This is, this is me humbling myself after the fashion of Jesus who humbled himself for me. And Entering into my family today as a servant and my office and my school and my city and the world, I'm going out in the posture of a servant to lay my life down in whatever way Jesus calls me to do that and empowers me by His Spirit to do that today so that people can know Him, can find authentic cleansing an authentic life. And the first thing that requires is for us to have an actual relationship with God the Father through Jesus. But then secondly, it requires us to live holy lives and not for the purpose of impressing God or gaining His favor. That's what Jesus did for us. But for the purpose of pleasing God. Because we love and want to. You know, we talked about this last week, and I used the semi-ridiculous but pretty serious actual example of dress shopping for men. So if you missed that, you know, it's, it's on the website. Uh, and then the next day, and this is not a joke, and it was not planned, I spent the whole day shopping for a dress with my wife. So uh, I really did, and I, I think she'll tell you that I had a good attitude about it. You know, I had some energy, and uh, we didn't get a dress, but th it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> No, I'm kidding. There's more to the story. She already had two, so we went with one that she already had, so just know that. I got two pairs of shoes because that just made me feel better. And, um, but what was the point of all of that last week? It was you do things for people that you love that you wouldn't naturally gravitate toward. Oh, yeah, we'll just turn the football game off. You know, we're in overtime. Let's go shop for a dress. You don't do that, but you do that for Jesus. That's the thing. Everybody fears following Christ because they look at all these things that you don't want to do or you look at all these things that you do want to do that you feel like, well, that's going to be out the window. And what you don't realize is that He enters into your life and He changes your want to. So now I want to do things that I would never have otherwise wanted to do and I don't want to do things that I lived for previously. Think about that. I get to do what I now want to do because He's transformed my heart. He's made me want to do them. 
It's not this grudging thing where you go, oh, good grief, here we go. Got to go shop for a dress. Or whatever. It transforms your heart, which transforms your life. Mission for Jesus, as I've been describing it, presupposes that you and I live holy lives, or to put that differently, live lives that actually look markedly, appreciatively, obviously, visibly, audibly different from people who do not know Jesus. And I say that because Jesus, for example, in verse 6 says this, He says that I, Jesus, have manifested Your name to the people. What name? A holy name. A name that is consistent with His character and nature, with who God is. I've manifested Your name to the people whom You gave Me out of the world. Yours they were and You gave them to Me and they have what? Ignored Your word? No, no, no. They have kept Your word. Why? Because all of a sudden, and it's weird, they kind of sort of have developed a want to. It's organic. It's not pushed. It's not fabricated. And what does it lead to? Well, it leads to a life that looks different from people who have not kept His Word, does it not? I mean, it's, it's axiomatic. It's simple math. Verse 17, Jesus again prays that God might sanctify us and He might set us apart. But in what? In the truth. Well, what's that? He says, your Word is truth. And in verse 19, He says, and for their sake, for the sake of all that I'm praying for, which includes all of us, I consecrate, I set myself apart that they also may be sanctified. It means set apart as holy in truth. And here's why that matters. Because if our values are the same as the values of everybody who do not know Jesus, don't follow Jesus, don't have anything to do with Jesus, don't think about Jesus, if the way that we do business is the same, if the way that we suffer is the same, if the way that we face death is the same, if we raise our kids in the exact same way, if we spend our time and money the same way, if we're just as proud and self-protective, then why is anyone going to want to hear about Christ? Peter says to always be prepared to give an answer for those who ask for the hope that is within you. And I want you to think about that because it presupposes something. It presupposes that when they look at your life, they're going to see something that they don't have. So, living in such a way as to bring glory to God the Father and glory to God the Son, how? Oh man, no throne, don't worry about that. Vestments, garments, glory, that's not what I'm about. Taking on the role of a servant, postured out into my family, office, school, workplace, to love, to serve, to share Christ with these people. It presupposes, it requires an actual relationship with God the Father through faith in Jesus it presupposes a holy life. And then thirdly, and finally, it requires unity amongst God's people. Four times in this prayer, Jesus prays that we, His people, will be one. The first of which is in verse 11, so I'll read you that one. He says, Holy Father, keep them, my people, in Your name, which You have given me, that they may be, here it is, one, even as we are one. Kind of a high standard. And you say, well, you know, what does that look like exactly? Because, man, there's a lot of different flavors of Christianity, if you will. And here's what I don't think it looks like. I don't think it looks like all of us having a great big conference and going, yes, we all agree that we should baptize infants. That's it. I don't think that's it. But I do think it's, it's the Spirit moving in such a way as to awaken us to the fact that we have a lot more in common than we have apart. And in addition to that, we agree on the gospel and we agree on mission to the city. 
And I see that's the Spirit doing that in our city and just a couple of examples of things that we're involved in. So our vision long-term is plant churches. So what are we doing now? Well, through the Mustard Seed campaign, we're completing our campus, which we don't plan to leave, but where we plan to stay, both as a church and as a school, for the purpose of then planting churches. But we don't plan to plant churches by ourselves, so we're working together with the two city churches, people who are a lot like us theologically, might I, I might add. But nevertheless... We're seeking to plant churches together, effective churches that actually reach this culture. What does that mean? What does that look like? All of those kinds of things are the kind of conversations that we're spending a great deal of time on in unity. Together we do it. It's another reason why I like Church United. Now that is a pretty disparate group of churches and a much, much larger group than the one that I just referred to. A lot of them are just like us, and a lot of them are very, very not much at all like us. But here's what we're all agreeing to do. I think the Spirit is moving us to say, you know, what if we stopped looking at each other as competitors and started realizing that missionally, we're all on the same team, guys. So then together, what can we do? All right, bottom line, the mission we're talking about presupposes relationship with Jesus It presupposes that we live lives that actually look different. And it calls us to unity. It calls us to look for ways to join together to do mission in the name of Jesus. And as we do that, here's what happens. People come to faith in Jesus. And last point, we experience joy, and it's an ironic joy. And I'll explain that in a minute. But listen to what Jesus says in verse 13. He says, but now I, Jesus, God the Son, am coming to you, God the Father. What is he anticipating? He's anticipating his death, his burial, his resurrection, and then his ascension, his return to heaven. And so these things that I speak in the world out loud in front of these guys, I speak out loud so that they, these guys, and everyone else who's invited into this room through their writings, that's us, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves as they go out into the world to live for themselves because that's the secret to true joy. Is that what he says? No. Now the idea is as they go out into the world and live in such a way as to bring glory to the Father and glory to the Son. And the reason that I say that this is ironic is because it's the exact opposite of what we all expect and what I think most of us think. Again, we look at the idea of following Jesus and all we can see is what we'll need to give away as opposed to what we're gaining. And we miss entirely that He changes our want to. And then here's what happens. In exaggerating our own significance, we lose the opportunity to have any significance. In making ourselves the cause We get to the end of our lives and find out there is no cause. When we become the mission, at that point there is no mission and there is no joy because there's no joy in a mission that is the size of Tom, for example. We all of us understand, don't we? That we were made to live for something bigger than ourselves. And when we ourselves are the mission, I don't know, man, is it really that motivating in the end? Do you end up at going, yes? I don't think so. But what Jesus is coming to us with is a hard mission. It's a sacrificial mission. There's no question about any of those things. But it's a purposeful mission, a meaningful mission, and it produces a deep-seated joy as you give yourself away 
to see other people eternally know the Father. Because you get the privilege of introducing them to the Savior, who alone makes it all possible. But again, that presupposes three things. And so since it requires, first of all, that you know God the Father through faith in Jesus, God the Son. Let me just ask you, because I think I'd be remiss if I didn't. Do you? You know, have you received the, the free gift of forgiveness that Jesus left His throne in heaven to bring to undeserving me and undeserving you? Okay, even though He knew our feet would run our mouths, you get the deal, right? Our hearts would seek to use Him to make ourselves great. We all do it. It's who we are by nature. And yet God so loved that He freely offers forgiveness in life. Have you claimed that? But since that also requires us to be holy, let me ask you, does your life look different from the people that you work with, from the people you go to school with, from the people you hang out with? Is it appreciably? Is it markedly? Is it in ever-increasing fashion unusual in a good and God-glorifying way to them? Or is it not? And you'll need to work out the details of that, but here's what I have found in the past. I have found that when the Lord wants to speak to me about something like that, yeah, I, I don't, you know, the, like Tom doesn't need to point it out because he's already done it. As soon as I mentioned it the first time, it was like, well, you know what that's all about, don't you? And like, oh, great, yes, thanks. But oh, great, yes, thanks, because it's an opportunity for freedom in life, for forgiveness and joy to make a difference. And so then finally, since it requires us to be one in mission, I want to ask you, who can you join together with in mission in your family for the sake of the rest of your family? They don't have to go to this church. Who else is a believer? Anybody? Who can you join together with in mission in your office? You can initiate it. Again, in mission to the people that you work with. Who can you join together in mission in your social circles and so on and so forth? And not in a manipulative way, but in a loving way. Here's the reality. If we really believe these things, would it not be unloving from the perspective of people who don't know it, but know we believe it, for us not to seek in a humble way to share it? Like if I'm my unbelieving friend, I'd be going, hey man, I might not buy your Jesus, and I, this might be an awkward conversation, but like at some point I'm going, does he, I mean, do you A, believe it, or, or does he love me enough to share it? I think that, that we need both. So who can you conspire together with for good, in love, in mission, where you work and live and play? Okay? So think about all of that, because as you do that, the Holy Spirit is inspiring within you an answer to the prayer of Christ. And in that, you'll find joy. So chew on that. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank You for this prayer and for this place. We thank You that by Your Spirit, uh, You have preserved this discussion and this prayer in Your Word. And Lord, I pray that we might, first of all, find our life in Christ and laying down our sin and, and laying down our pride and receiving freely what He alone could accomplish and has for us and freely gives us. And I pray, Lord, that the love of that will transform our hearts, that we might love You enough to want to know more, to want to go deeper, to want to even do things that, man, we couldn't have imagined wanting to do previously. Lord, I pray that You would bind us together with one another 
that we might learn to live more effectively for you and experience your joy and more missionally wherever it is that you've placed us. So give us wisdom and courage to go out into the world and to live out the answer to this prayer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.